And today uh, we will be looking at Cain and Abel, but the emphasis will be upon Abel, for he is commended for his faith in the book of Hebrews. I mean, there's a lot of ways to get in the Bible. And sometimes it's a little humbling because your failures as a person are in Holy Scripture for all to see as long as people read Scripture and see. But uh, it's wonderful to be in Hebrews chapter 11 because the emphasis here is upon faith. And that's what we've been talking about for a number of weeks. Hebrews chapter 11 gives us case studies in real live people in terms of which what does faith look like in flesh and blood everyday life. Last week we looked at Noah. This week we're looking at Abel. Soon we will look at Enoch. Then we will look at Abraham and a continuing cast of characters including Moses and others. So hear now the word of the Lord as we read Hebrews chapter 11, verses one through four. Now faith is the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things not seen. For by it the people of old received their commendation. By faith, we understand that the universe was created by the word of God, so that what is seen was not made out of things that are visible. By faith, Abel offered to God a more acceptable sacrifice than Cain, through which he was commended as righteous, God commending him by accepting his gifts. And through his faith, Though he died, he still speaks. This is God's word. Let us pray. Our gracious God and Father, we thank you that you have included this narrative in the scripture regarding Cain and Abel. And we know that there's much we can learn from this. But we pray that our hearts will be receptive, ready to receive the implanted word of God, which has power, which is life-giving, which is able to save our souls. We pray that you will empower the preacher today and the hearer of God's word today, that we may benefit greatly from this time together, being seated and feasting upon your word. And may we bring glory to you because we have heard your word and obeyed it and believed it today. And we pray in Jesus' name, amen. The first story in the Bible that I ever remember being scandalized by when I was a child going to Sunday school was Cain and Abel. Maybe it's because I was a middle child and my older brother was always unfair to me. And uh, I, I remember my brother was sort of the neighborhood oldest boy in our little local neighborhood. And there must have been 15 or 20 kids in our neighborhood. We played together all the time. And if my brother called you out, you were out. If he called you safe, you were safe. If he said it was a foul ball, it's a foul ball. And no matter how much I protested to the contrary, nobody would listen to me. Nobody. 
And I thought, this is so unfair. So I'd go in the house and swing the door open and run to my mom and whine about how unfair it was. She said, you need to man up, son. Go out there. I can't solve these problems. You've got to solve them yourself. Go do it. Get out of my face. Go. That's a good kind of mother to have if you're a boy. But I never liked this story because upon first blush, it seemed so unfair. It seemed so arbitrary. I don't know. Have you read this story lately? Have you looked at the story? Are you familiar with it? Without any prior explanation, the story of both Cain and Abel is mysterious, even enigmatic. Adam and Eve had two sons. Cain, who was a farmer, he went into agriculture. And Abel, who took up shepherding or animal husbandry. Both were religious men, and when it came time to worship, each brought an offering appropriate to their profession. Abel from his flock and Cain from his fields, but curiously, God favored Abel's sacrifice and he rejected Cain's. Cain, in turn, became exceedingly angry. His face fell, which is a biblical way of saying he was really ticked off. And God warned him, if you don't do what is right, will you not be accepted? But if you do not do what is right, sin is crouching at your door. It desires to have you, but you must master it. But Cain nursed his rage and murdered Abel, whose blood cried out to God from the ground. And the tragic story closes this way. So Cain went out <clears throat> from the Lord's presence and lived in the land of Nod, east of Eden. What a strange story. And what is the reasoning behind this primitive drama? What's going on here? Why is this story in the Bible and what does it tell us? Now, we've been looking at case studies in the book of Hebrews upon people who demonstrate for us what faith is and what it looks like in a life. Last week, as I said, we looked at Noah and Noah standing against the world, contramundum. Everybody else is laughing at him. He's building an ocean lighter in the middle of Kansas. Everybody thinks he's ridiculous. He knows he's right and proves he's right and proves them all wrong. And that is powerful because it arises from faith. But as we begin to look at Abel's story, I want, you, I want to call attention to a word that I want you to focus upon. And it's found in verse 4. By faith, Cain offered to God a more acceptable sacrifice than Cain. Abel offered a sacrifice more acceptable than Cain, through which he was, look at the word commended. I want to hone in for a moment on that word commended. Now, you ever gotten a commendation? You ever gotten a little certificate or a little award or a participation trophy or something like that and you went home and framed it and put it on the mantle or put your trophy in your room and looked at it every day and said to yourself, I know I'm not nothing because I have this participation trophy, right? But the word commend here is a very interesting word. Do you know what the word is? Unless you have a Greek New Testament in front of you, you probably don't, don't know. It is the word martyreo, from which we get the word martyr, okay? Martyr, the word martyr. 
And unfortunately, that word has come into the English language, and the word martyr means to suffer for a cause, sometimes needlessly for a cause. But if you want to understand what this word means, you have to realize the fact is that the word is a legal word. It has a legal context. And what it means is God bore witness. God gave testimony to them that he was pleased with them. This is a legal idea. The setting, the image, the metaphor is a legal one. Imagine yourself in a court or in front of a committee, a judicial committee, and imagine yourself sitting there and you're defending yourself. You're, you're, you're trying to defend yourself the best that you can. You're the defendant. You're struggling to make your case. All of a sudden, somebody walks in who happens to be an authoritative witness, maybe a forensic expert, or maybe a missing eyewitness, and the witness sits down and gives testimony that completely destroys the case of the opposition. Maybe this expert says, I was there and I saw everything. I saw it all happen. It establishes your case beyond a shadow of a doubt. The case is dismissed and joy and relief wash over you. It's a powerful moment because you've received this authoritative witness who has proven that you're approved an authoritative witness who puts your case beyond a shadow of a doubt. That's what the word commended means. Now, there's nothing more we want than that, but there are many, not just legal, but emotional and personal versions of this in people's lives. What we are told here is that people like Abel had the reality itself, the God who is the author of all authority, permanently changed their self-understanding by giving them a testimony that was completely and absolutely pleasing with them, that he was pleased with them. He accepted them. He approved them. He endorsed them. And when you know that that one, the only eyes that matter, the only witness who matters, absolutely accepts you, what happens? You can take on anything. Let hell itself break forth. It doesn't matter. I can face anything. Nothing phases me. That's what Abel had. That's what these ancients had. They were commended. Now, how do you get that? How do you get commended like that from God? How do you get a life of power and sustenance and being able to stand in the face swimming upstream against a downstream world? That's what this whole chapter is about. How do you get the certainty that God sees you as acceptable to him, as righteous, that he approves of you utterly and totally? He says, you're wonderful. I'll never leave you. I will always love you. I will never forsake you. How do you get that? Well, we are told in verse 2 that it mentions that they all had that, but Abel, we are told in a particular way, in an incident in which he and his brother Cain came to God with an offering. 
We are told in Genesis 4 that Abel and Cain, two brothers, came with an offering to God. Now, I've already told you Abel was a keeper of flocks. He brought an animal sacrifice. Let me also just say what their names mean. Cain means I have gotten or I have acquired. Many people believe Eve, upon the birth of Cain, is rejoicing and he is named that because he is the seed of the woman who will come and crush the serpent's head. And she thinks that fulfillment has already occurred. Do you know what Abel's name means? Vanity. Insubstantial. Vapor. You ever read the book of Ecclesiastes? Meaninglessness, meaningless. That's what life is. It's vanity, vanity upon vanities, emptiness. That's what Abel's name means. I don't know why she named him that. When I get to heaven, I'm gonna ask her. What'd you name him Abel for? And so it's an interesting thing. But we're told in Genesis 4, Abel and his sacrifice God had regard for, but Cain and his sacrifice God had no regard at all. And at the time of this incident, Abel received the witness, the authoritative stamp of approval. He was commended by God himself. He was shown that God had accepted him as absolutely righteous. And as a result, he became one of those great hearts who can face the world and face anything. How does this happen? By looking at his case, we will have some understanding of how we might know the same thing. And the best way to put all of this in these case studies in Hebrews 11, uh, this is the only one given to us by way of contrast. Abel is given to us by way of contrast with Cain. Now, as you read the Bible throughout, you're going to see this contrast over and over again. I think it was St. Augustine who said, what you see is the city of man and the city of God all through Scripture. The city of man is represented by Cain. The city of God is represented by Abel. And so what we're going to understand today is uh, the case of Cain and Abel and to ask the following questions. How are Cain and Abel alike? How are they alike? Number two, how are they not alike? How are they radically different? And number three, which one are you? Are you a Cain or are you an Abel? That's as simple as I can make it. First, how are they alike? Well, they're very much alike. Just think about it. Now, notice that the Bible is continually giving us examples of couples putting people side by side. Give us examples of two individuals who seem to be completely alike on the outside, but inside are polar opposites. On the outside, they look identical. On the inside, radically different. Now, here you have Cain and Abel, same family. Think about it. Same parents. Same instruction. In fact, they're both going to worship God by bringing offerings, but totally different. Isaac and Ishmael, same father, totally different. Jacob and Esau, twins, same gene pool, totally different. You have 10 foolish bridesmaids in the New Testament and 10 wise bridesmaids, same friends, same event, probably the same dresses, totally different. The reason why we're shown these people over and over again is that the Bible teaches us there's a foundational difference in the human race and really only one. 
There's one major difference. There's one foundational difference. And the reason we're given all of these pairs of similars, but totally dissimilar people, is because the Bible wants to emphasize, underline, and show us the foundational difference between people is not a racial one. It is not an economic one. It is not a political one because the dividing line goes right down the middle of races, right down the middle of families, right down the middle of even wombs. And it goes right down the middle of the church. Yeah, Cain and Abel are two worshipers, both coming with their offering. And you say, well, they're both worship. And that's an important thing. One is rejected, one is accepted, and one persecutes the other. Now you see, people, we are being told here that everybody in the world today is either a Cain or an Abel. Cain or Abel. Everybody in this room is either a Cain or an Abel. And there are two fundamentally different ways to approach God. There are two fundamentally different ways to approach life. There are two fundamentally different ways to run and operate your heart. And once the choice is made at this point, it affects everything. Psychologically, sociologically, your eternal destiny. Everything is affected by this choice. Here's how they're the same, though. They're the same because they were both taught. They both know intuitively that you cannot go to God just as you are. You have to go with an offering. You can't just go into God. They knew that. There's no such thing as a come-as-you-are party with God. They knew they couldn't go in just as they were. They had to bring an offering. They had to point at their offering, and they had to say, accept me because of this. Accept me because of this offering. Now, why? Well, a lot of people say, well, I know why. Because these are primitive people. And in primitive times, we believe you had to appease the angry, cranky gods with offerings of livestock, grain, and sometimes people. But we're way past the primitive ideologies of the past. Uh, we're more sophisticated. We're enlightened. No, no, no. The reason they did this is because of human nature. And I s submit to you this morning that we are all still fundamentally knowing the same thing. In all of our relationships, in our relationship with God, in our relationships with each other, in our relationships with ourselves, we know that we can't just go in. We all know that as we are, it'll never work. If we want to be approved of, we have to control what people see, and that is what an offering is. That is what an offering is. Let me give you an example. Elections are coming up in November, and uh, this is sort of a fun, fun time of the year, uh, depending on your perspective, but they're coming up. And they're kind of funny because what you have is candidates coming to us, the electorate, and they're saying this, approve me, accept me, love me, vote for me. That's what they're doing. But they don't come just as they are. They do not let you see who they really are. They control completely what we see of them, and they come to us with offerings, and they say, look at my record." Look at my credentials. Look at my plan. Look at my wise plan. Please approve me on the basis of my offering. Offerings will always do two things. 
They create an image of strength and they hide your flaws. Candidates know you're never going to accept them if you really knew everything about them. They know that. Um, if you know what they're really like, if you know how they really talk, if you know how they treat their children, if you know their entire voting record, if you know everything, so what do they do? They control what you see. They don't come just as they are. They don't just go in. They control what you see. They bring offerings and say, approve of me because of this. Woven into the fabric of human nature. Fallen human nature. Well, it's kind of funny about how that works. But you know, politicians, of course, they're that way. But not only are politicians that way, everybody I know is that way. Everybody I know is that way. That's how we get into any circle. That's how we get into any school. It's how we date. It's how we get into any social circle. It's how we get into relationships. Why is it you're ready to go out on a date, you dress in the outfit, you expect to dress, and you get frantic? Why do you get frantic? Why do you change? Because when you look in the mirror, the outfit, <laughs> mirror doesn't lie, does it? When you get in front of the mirror, the outfit shows the world what you really look like, and you don't want anybody to see that, do you? You don't want anybody to see what you really look like. We're all to this or to that or this part of my body. Our clothes are a way of controlling what people see about us. And as soon as we say, oh my gosh, it makes me look heavy as I am, or skinny, as bad as I am, and we go bananas. When we go into any social situation, the thing that most petrifies us is that people will completely see who we are, and we have no control over that. Jean-Paul Sartre, in his book, Being in Nothingness, has a chapter called The Look. In it, he says there's nothing worse than a stare, because if someone sees you who you cannot see, you cannot control people's knowledge of you. It destroys you. It utterly destroys you. It's easy for people to say, oh, that's not true about me. I happen to know who I am, and I don't care what people think about me. Sartre says, that's silly. He says, if there's anybody who sees you who you can't see, and if there's anybody who has absolute access to knowledge, and you can't be selective about what people see about you, and you can't provide certain things and keep certain things back, you're undone. Why? Because fundamentally we know we are not acceptable. We never just go in. We always bring offerings. We always have to hide and cover up who we are. Now, why is that? Well, the Bible gives a perfectly profound and the only profound enough answer, but in the last few years, people seem to have be saying, well, if you feel that way, it's because of bad parenting. Your potty training was too severe. The reason you always have to hide, the reason you can't be who you are, the reason you can't be authentic the reason you feel very often like you have to hide, the reason you can't be just who you are, the reason you feel very often that you have to kind of keep people out and you have to control what they see is because you didn't get enough love when you were growing up. I think people are beginning to realize now, whereas bad parenting can aggravate the condition, it doesn't cause it. The Bible tells us about Adam and Eve. 
And before they disobeyed God, this very interesting comment in Genesis, it says they were naked and what? Not ashamed. Naked and not ashamed. I don't think we can conceive of that, can we? What does that mean? Well, they just went in. Not only to God, but to each other. Naked and unashamed meant they had nothing to hide. They had no need for an offering. They had no need to control what people saw. Their hearts were completely full of pure. But the minute they disobeyed, amazing things happened. They, they jumped into the bushes. They hit the dirt. They put fig leaves on to cover themselves up. Not just to cover themselves from God's eye, but to cover themselves from the eyes of each other. You know why? Because the human heart has become self-centered. And yet we can't extinguish the original knowledge that we were originally built to serve God and other people. And as a result, there's this sense of shame. There's a sense of guilt. We know we can't just rush in. We can't go in anymore. We know that. We know we can't be acceptable just as you are or as I am. We have to have an offering. We have to desperately point and say, look at this. Look at this. Look at this about me. Look at this about me. Don't you see I'm acceptable? We have to hide. We have to cover. We have to put up an image. We all do it. And there's a primal need in us because there's a painful, indelible sense that we're not right and something is wrong. That's why there's so much virtue, virtue signaling in our culture today. Isn't it funny that everybody now says, nobody's guilty, nobody feels shame anymore. That's just the Puritan past. That's the Victorian ethic. We have transcended that. We're past that. And yet, all this virtue signaling by demonstrating to people that we are the righteous ones. You know, the next vegan I meet, and if you're a vegan, I love you, and Jesus loves you too. And I'm trying to love you too. But it, it, it always, when I'm around a vegan, and I don't even have to say anything to them, they'll start on this great apologetic as to why they're a vegan. And they'll start telling me all these reasons. And all I'm thinking the whole time is, I love red meat. I love red meat. I'm never giving up red meat for nobody, ever. And I love barbecue pork ribs, and I'm never giving that up. But people virtue signal all the time about certain things in their life. And, and maybe they're really concerned about the environment. And we all should be. But they're trying to show you they're a good person. They're concerned. They care. Why do they do that? Because they know they're not good. Because they know they have shame. Or they deny shame, but they have it. They deny guilt, but they have it. It's a way of covering our nakedness. It's a way of saying... I can feel acceptable. So why do some of us work so hard? It's our offering. It's your way of saying to yourself, to other people and to God, look, please, don't you see I'm acceptable? It's the only way you can feel acceptable if you're just killing yourself with work. Why is it that some of you have to help every single person on the planet? You can never say no to anybody. You can't disappoint anybody. You're always being taken advantage of. Why? It's your offering. It's your covering up, that sense of nakedness. It's your way of saying, it's the only way I can feel acceptable. 
Why are some of you just the radical opposite of that? Why are some of you undercommitted, never trusting anybody, tough on the inside, never letting anybody get close to you, never letting anybody see the real you inside because you only feel acceptable when nobody knows you? Cheers is not the bar for you. Why are some of you just devastated when you gain a pound? Why are you devastated if you're not being pursued or dated if you're single? These are fig leaves. These are offerings. These are desperate ways of saying, don't you see, I'm really acceptable. These are ways of trying to commend yourself, to get an authoritative witness that you're okay. These are ways of making a curse, I mean a case for yourself that I deserve to live, I'm okay, but underneath you know these offerings don't work. They're not perfect. So there's always a floating sense of condemnation. Therefore, Cain and Abel both did what we all do. It's not just that Cain is like Abel, but Cain and Abel are like us. We're all the same. We just don't go in to God we need an offering. Now, how are they unlike? Well, let's move on quickly here. How is Cain unlike Abel? And how is Abel unlike Cain? Abel, the scriptures tell us, offered a better sacrifice. The Lord had regard for Abel and his sacrifice, but for Cain and his sacrifice, the Lord had no regard. Well, that seems, on first blush, to be very, very unfair. It seemed pretty obvious why Abel and Cain brought the sacrifices they did. Abel is a shepherd, a keeper of flocks. Cain was a tiller of the soil. Abraham brought some of the flock. Cain brought some of the fruit of the ground. Most people, when they think they went into God, what they were saying is, accept me because I work hard. Accept me because I'm a productive member of the human race. Accept me. Look at the things I'm doing. Please accept me. But that's not at all true because if they were both coming like that, then why did God accept one and reject the other? People might say, well, God's just arbitrary like that. Uh, I used to ask my father questions like I remember asking him specifically about Cain and Abel. And I said, Dad, can you tell me why God received Abel's sacrifice? He said, you'll have to ask him when you go to heaven. I don't know. But it's troubling, a little troubling. But it says here, by faith, Abel offered his sacrifice. What's that? Well, faith, we're beginning to see, is always a positive response to God's word. You have to remember, Abel and Cain knew what we know from Genesis 3. God had spoken to Adam and Eve. And when they had disobeyed, when they had fallen into the sense of shame, when they developed, a terrible sense of guilt and shame, which we all have to deal with, this sense of inadequacy, this sense of incompleteness, this thing, this voice, we can't put out no matter what we're trying to say, it's complexes, it's stresses, it's bad parenting and so on, God said something to them. Abel's sacrifice was done in response to God's word. Cain was not. Abel responded in faith. His sacrifice was a living out of the thing God said to Adam and Eve. And Cain's wasn't. Well, what did God say? First of all, he said to Adam and Eve, listen, don't try to cover yourself up. 
Let me cover yourself. Let me do it. You'll never do it. That's the first thing. When God saw Adam and Eve pitifully trying to cover up their nakedness, no longer could they just go in, no longer could they ever go to any other person, whether divine or human, just as they are. They had no control of what, or they had to control what people saw. This is one of the most wonderful things. It was pitiful. They were trying to cover up their nakedness. God comes to them, to them and he says, you'll never do it. Your offerings will never be good enough. You'll always know it. And if you try to deal with the situation yourself, you will ut utterly fail. And he makes them close as a way of telling them you'll never deal with this yourself. Your offerings will never work. Your coverings will never work. I have to cover you. And this is one of the most wonderful things the Bible says. And there are some tremendous prophecies about it. In Isaiah 61, when the prophet Isaiah comes to understand this tremendous point, I will rejoice, he says. I will rejoice in the Lord, for he hath clothed me with the garments of salvation. He has wrapped me in the robe of righteousness. There are many places where the Bible talks about that. And it's the first thing God said to Adam and Eve. Your offerings won't do it. Your covering won't do it. But then the second thing, of course, is in answer to the question, well, how will God do this? He looks at Adam and Eve and he says the following, something like it. I'm going to send somebody, the descendant of the woman, and he will be wounded in a terrible battle. He will suffer. He will bleed. He will be the offering. He will do it. And it will be an offering that will bring you <coughs> all the way home. He will restore you. He will save you. But he's going to be wounded. So when Abel comes with the offering, it's a bloody offering. And it's not just because he happens to be a keeper of the flocks, but instead he comes to God and he says, Lord God, I don't know what this is going to mean. I don't know what you're going to do. I don't know how this is going to work. But all I know is my only hope is that someday you will send one who is wounded Here's the wounded one. I trust in this and only in this. I don't come pointing to my works. This is what Cain was doing. Cain comes in. We understand what Cain is doing. He says, look at me. Look at what I do. Look at my accomplishments. Look at my work. Look at what a good person I am. Look at how hard I work, how productive I am. You'd better favor me. It's only fair. Abel comes in and says, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. So we have a Pharisee and we have a publican in the temple. And only one of them went home justified that day. Abel comes in and he's talking about whom? Jesus. He offers a better sacrifice. In Ephesians 5, the scripture says Christ loved us and made himself for us an offering and a pleasing sacrifice. What does it mean? What it means is when Jesus Christ was stripped, hung naked upon the cross, people mocking him, twisting and turning the verdict against him, a total mess of a trial and legal system, and there we see him stripped naked, wounded, so we could be covered. 
All of us know we're guilty and desperately want a verdict of not guilty. We want people to approve of us. Here's the one who was guiltless. He gets all of our greatest nightmares, the trial, the verdict, the rejection. He becomes utterly out of control. He is strict naked before the world. He became sin who knew no sin that we might become the righteousness of God in him. And that's what happens. And it says, Abel says, God be merciful to me, a sinner. And he points to this sacrifice and as a result, he's accepted. So which one are you? Which one are you? Are you a Cain or are you Abel? And there are two ways to tell. If you're an Abel or Cain, there are just two things Abel had that Cain did not. First, Abel was commended by God. He knew he pleased God. Secondly, Abel was killed by Cain. Now I want to show you how these two tests can tell whether you're a Cain or Abel. First of all, Abel was commended. The Lord had regard for Abel and his sacrifice, but for Cain and his sacrifice, the Lord had no regard. Genesis goes on and says, and Cain was very wroth, filled with wrath. That's old King James, his face fell. Now what it's telling is no matter how religious they are, no matter how much they worship, no matter how many offerings they give, no matter how good they try to live, no matter how much money they give to the church or the poor, Cain's never feel the commendation of God. They're restless. Underneath the surface, they're very angry. They always sense they displease God no matter how hard they try. And they're right. And they're very unhappy about it. Abel's, if you come as a humble sinner and you plead the blood of Jesus Christ, if you come not pointing to anything you have done, then that's what a Christian is. A Christian is an Abel. What a Christian is, is you go into God, you admit who you are, you don't point away from it right away, you admit who you are, in a sense you go in as you are, empty-handed, but then you point and you say something like this. No merit of my own, his anger to suppress. My only hope is found in Jesus' righteousness. Cast your deadly doing down, down at Jesus' feet. Stand in him, him alone, gloriously complete. So Abel comes in, he points, he knows. And here's the reason you know. A Cain is somebody who believes, I'm trying my best. Pastor, I'm trying my best. But you always know your sacrifice isn't perfect. You know your sacrifice isn't perfect, so there's always doubt. But an Abel is somebody who comes to God and says something like this, my record's not perfect. Not even this day, not even this week. My heart and my faith are not perfect this week, but my offering is perfect. My wounded Jesus, my surety, my Savior is perfect. Therefore, you know your offering is perfect and you know you're accepted. Cain's always hate the idea of being born again or born from above. They hate the idea of needing the blood of Christ. What do Cain say? Cain say, oh, the really important thing is that you're a good person. The important thing is that you live a good life. 
All this blood sacrifice, all this being born again, it's just not really important. You're just showing yourself when you say stuff like that that you're a Cain. You're in his church. Do you know what the difference is between Cain's and Abel's? It's not your sins. Cain admits his sin. Abel admits his sin. They both repent of their sins, but the difference is that Abel repents of his righteousness, and Cain's never do that, never. What's keeping you, Cain, from God is not your sins. You admit you're not perfect. You admit you're a sinner. It's your damnable good works. It's your offerings. It's the things you point to. And you, things that you won't see that are just inadequate, Christians and non-Christians, Christians and religious people, both repent of their sins, but only Christians repent of their offerings. Only Christians repent of their righteousness. No merit of my own. That's the difference. And finally, the last difference is that Cain's hate Abel's. Who hated Jesus more than anybody else in the New Testament? The Pharisees, the scribes, the teachers of the law, the most so-called holy, righteous, good, conservative people hated Jesus. How could that be? <laughs> they despised him. As a matter of fact, who was it that put Jesus on the cross? Well, you might say it was the Roman army. Or you might say it was God, and you wouldn't be wrong about either one. But who set him up? Who made him take the fall? Who gave him over to the Romans? It was the Sanhedrin council, the Pharisees, the self-righteous people. They hate the Abels of the world. Always have, always will. That's how you can tell who you are. Cain hated Abel. He killed him. He's dead. Why? Because Cain's feel Abel's are arrogant. Cain's are trying so hard. They have a sense of nakedness and unrighteousness, and they're trying hard to cover it with their perfect offerings, and their offerings aren't perfect, so they're always restless. They're always mad at God. They always feel like they're getting a raw deal. They always feel like God isn't really being fair. Always. That's how they feel. They don't see themselves as terrible sinners. Therefore, when you see an Abel who's sure God loves him, there's always a Cain who hates that. They think you must be arrogant. You must think you're perfect. But of course, Cain's are reading Abel's through their own grid. But Abel's don't hate Cain's because Abel's know they're saved by grace alone. And there's no real difference between Cain's and Abel's. They just yearn for Cain's to see the light and the truth. Cain's can't handle people who are different. It threatens them because they feel if you're going to make it with God, you've got to be good, you've got to be accurate. But Abel's are so very different. Abel's are people who no longer worry. Abel's no longer stand on their own dignity. Abel's no longer worry about what they look like. Abel's just go in. They go in. And when you're with an Abel, even though you're different than them, even though you disagree with them, even though you disagree terribly with them, they don't see themselves as superior to you if they really get it. Because they get their self-understanding, they say, I am not a better person in my offerings. They say, there's no difference between you and me. 
Therefore, Abel's make you feel you can be great because they're great only by one, for one reason and one reason only, and that is the word and concept of grace. Grace. Is there anybody here who has come with your own offering? If you don't let Jesus Christ be your offering, as Kierkegaard says, it'll be midnight, Cinderella and the mask will have to come off. You can't hide forever. Let Jesus be your righteousness. Let others in gaudy dress of fancied merit shine. The Lord shall be my righteousness, the Lord forever mine. Are you a Cain or are you an Abel? How does a Cain become an Abel? by looking at the only offering that makes us acceptable to God and placing your trust in him and no longer trusting in yourself. You cannot save yourself. You cannot do it. Stop trying. Trust in Jesus. Let's pray. Our gracious God and Father, we thank you for this simple story that upset me in my childhood because I didn't understand it. I, I didn't see it. I just read it on a surface level. And to me, it stirred up the cane in me and I, I, I was angry about it, even as a child. But I thank you that by your grace and your grace alone, I see in this story the greatest good news that has ever been said that what our heart longs for is commendation. We want an authoritative witness to say, I am pleased with you, I approve of you, I accept you, you are mine, I will never leave you, I will never forsake you. I pray that you will cause hearts today to stop looking at their own offerings and look at the only offering. A wounded, loving, giving Savior who is stripped naked so we could be clothed. Now, Father, as we continue to worship you, may we do so as we give back to you a portion of that which you've entrusted to us, and may we do it with joy. In Jesus' name, amen.